Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello and welcome to the Run Run Live podcast, episode 4-376. Today we follow up on episode 4-374, where I interviewed Jonathan about his training and his attempt to cut close to a half an hour off his marathon time to qualify for Boston. So today he walks us through his first attempt and what he learned from it. And it turns out that by taking the longer commuter rail train into the city, I can get some writing done in the morning and in the afternoon. And as an added benefit, it's about a mile walk from North Station to my office. And this is a nice add, nice addition of a brisk 15 to 20 minute city walk, because city walks are different than regular walks. Past Government Center, the old North Church, Faneuil Hall, to start and end my day. I mean, I could take the subway, but it's nasty and a crowded ride, and that would take 15 minutes anyhow. So the net result is that I have a nice, long, and very special race report from the Bay State Marathon for you. And it is north of 5,000 words. I'll see how it fits. Maybe I'll break it up into two pieces, but it's going to take up most of this show. And uh, so I'll be brief. My training is going well, or my training is good. My next events are the local Thanksgiving 5K and the Mill Cities Relay. And it looks like Frank and Brian and I are going to be on a team for the relay, which means I probably won't have to be the guy running the 10-mile leg. I'll get one of those shorter legs, which is five, which are five or six miles. But hopefully I won't be relegated to the 2.5-mile lake, which I'm definitely not designed for. Tuesday of this week was my birthday, and I turned, well, I turned older. (laughs) I jumped an age group, and I took advantage of the time change and got the 5.30 a.m. train into the city. And I ran down to the river and knocked out a set of five by seven-minute intervals at a hard effort with two-minute rest, which is like a 1,600 for me. That's basically a seven-minute interval. And the speed work, I was averaging around a seven-minute mile, right? Do the math. Which is neither here nor there, as they say. 
I, I could compare those to my marathon PR race pace of 7.08 and uh, be a little sad about how slow and the, the ongoing loss of my ability, but I choose not to. I see it as a gift. I just I see just being able to breathe that bright morning air into my lungs and push the morning blood through my heart as a as a gift. And to be able to do it at a pretty good pace and effort, that's a bonus. And that's a gift to me on my birthday. I also got a lot of attention from the people who love me, and that's a gift to be part of someone's life and to know you're loved. And I got lots of messages from a couple hundred of you, my friends, on the ever-efficient Facebook and other places. And there's some ironic, snarky comment about robot overlords and birthdays here, but I'm going to take the high road. So thank you, all of you, for the gift of your attention, your time, and the gift of somehow fitting usefully into your firmament. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Bay State Marathon 2017, back where it all started. So the picture is Brian, Frank, and I sitting next to each other in the finish area on a curb. And we're happy. It's a perfect moment. Brian's sister took the picture. It's that rare moment just after the end of a race where you have recovered from the immediacy of the effort and the accomplishment begins to take root. You've got nowhere else to be, nothing else to do. And for this brief moment, you take the time to relax and celebrate. You're among friends. Sure in your accomplishments, glowing in your success. It is in the moment where the race ceases to be a personal struggle and melts back together into a shared experience. It goes from this thing you just did to the thing we all did, each in our own way, separate in our experience, but together on the greater journey. In the corral at the start, I couldn't find Frank or Brian. I wasn't worried, but I would have been more comfortable knowing my comrades were with me. I lined up in the crowded corral next to the 335 pacer, and I stood on my toes and I looked around but could not see them in the crowd. It was clear and cool, windless, a good day for racing. Weather report said it was going to end up 70 degrees and sunny. But with the early start, we should be in before that happened. The best thing, the wonderful thing, was that it was dry. None of that humidity that had dogged our training runs all summer. It was like having a hot, wet blanket lifted from our shoulders. It was a good crowd. There were about 1,500 marathoners on one side of the road and another crowd of half-marathoners on the other lined up outside the Songus Arena in downtown Lowell. That nervous moment of anthems and oaths. I hadn't raced Bay State for over a decade. I thought the change in the qualification window might have had a negative impact on the attendance 
being an October race, it's no longer a qualifier for the current year's marathon like it used to be. The cadence is broken. This race would be for the 2019 hopefuls, trying to qualify 18 months in advance. The race starts in downtown Lowell, Massachusetts, the city of my birth, a gritty industrial city of brick mills along the banks of the Merrimack River, a city of canals, a city home to successive waves of immigrants looking for a better life over the last 150 years. And we, not immigrants, but transient migrants, waited in the cool morning air, nervous and seeking ourselves. You might think that after all these years of training and racing, I would not be afraid. What do I have to prove? I have lost count of the marathons that I have run and raced. And since I started racing marathons in the late 90s, when I was in my mid-30s, depending on how you count them, this marathon would be somewhere around number 60. And it's not like I have anything to prove, even to myself, but there's always something there in the back of my mind that drives me. The training brings structure and wellness to my life. The goals give the training a reason. I don't lose sleep over races, but I am afraid of racing in a different way. I'm afraid of what it says about me and my ability and the mythos of ability, that great sandcastle of self-indulgence, hubris, and pride. After all these years, after 19 trips to Hopkinton, I still feel like a pretender. I don't feel like I belong. I'm just waiting for someone to find out. And each performance is an opportunity to prove that inner critic right. And I'm afraid of trying and failing. I'm afraid of getting there late in the race, meeting the beast, and giving up. I'm afraid that somewhere inside of me lives a quitter, a coward, a man meek and afraid of giving his best and coming up short. I'm afraid of not being good enough. And I didn't have a lot riding on this race. This is my 20th Boston this year, and I have no driving need to qualify for number 21. But I would like to know that I can still race. I can still do the long, hard training to get myself ready. I can still execute a smart marathon end-to-end using that training the way it should be used. I'm still invested in my ability to qualify, And sometimes I self-destruct because if you don't really try, you can't really fail. But if you don't try, you have already failed. As the bard said, a coward dies a thousand times before his death. But the valiant taste of death but once. It seems to me most strange that men should fear, seeing that death, a necessary end, will come when it will come. I met Frank through his brother, Gordon. Gordon was and is in my running club. Frank and I both came to the marathon in our 30s. I had been a runner of sort in school, whereas Frank started running late in life. A high school teacher, a principal, a career guy in the system. I remember one of the first times we ran together back in the 90s. 
It was an impromptu 20-miler some Sunday morning in March, and somehow I got copied on an email because I was one of the usual suspects. And a group met at a guy's house, and we ran the Boston course out from the city. I was late. I was always late. But I remember Frank and I enjoyed each other's company in that weird runner's codependence way. In the early years of running and training for the Boston Marathon, you appreciate codependence where you can find them. There's a natural cadence that requires a lot of long runs on frosty winter mornings. Company and codependence are comforting. Not as comforting as the warm bed you climb out of, but at least, with a merry band of comrades, you're not alone on the island of your running madness. And that's the thing about running. You train with friends, but in a race you're alone. And I don't mean alone in the sense of physical proximity. I mean alone in the sense that that race is yours to run. The effort is yours. The execution is yours. The competition is you. Frank is about my height, but preternaturally lean. And that's why we call him Bones. Maybe 120 pounds soaking wet. I think he was amused that I was running and racing at a chubby close to 200 pounds in those days. And for some reason, he didn't mind and seemed entertained by my constant patois on the long runs, my theories, my stories, my jokes. We had the shared respect of the work of showing up and training and racing. And in the shared and constant striving for that starting line in Hopkinton, and that finish line on Boylston Street. And over the years, we dropped into the same racing cadence, always aimed at Boston, long, cold winter runs to burn in that endurance conditioning, long, cold winter races to tune the muscles and sinew and bones. And that was the cadence. We'd qualify in the fall and race in the spring. We'd have that runner's conversation are you running Boston? Yeah. Are you running Derry? Are you running Stews? Are you running Eastern States? Can I get a ride to the start with you? What time do we meet? Are you guys racing New Bedford? And I never beat Frank. The closest I came was one year at the infamously challenging Derry 16-miler. Late January, I was still in shape from a December half-marathon goal whereas they were just spinning up their training for Boston. And I was strong in the hills, and I had a jump on them the whole way. But he passed me on that last downhill to the finish. I was heads down, running hard, the road sand crunching under my big feet, and he pulled up beside me like he was fresh as a daisy. He said hi and left me in the dust of my effort. Another day at the office... And in those days, I used to run in an oversized yellow and black sweater, and you knew it was me from a distance. I'm sure he had been tracking me for miles. And we ran at least a dozen dairies, another dozen eastern states, a handful of stews, 30Ks. Frank and Brian and I would start together, but usually I'd have to let them go towards the end. I remember one eastern states where we were running hard at the end as a group. I was still with them. And they paused to hit the water stop around 18 miles. And I skipped it and I ran ahead to get a jump on them. But they caught me, blowing past me a mile later at 
full-on race pace, close to the finish. When the race started, I still hadn't found my friends. I ran within sight of the 335 pacer, just a bit out in front of him and his large pack of followers. I needed to pace well, and I was thankful to have a ready pacer. This is a qualifying race for many. Base State boasts more Boston qualifiers than any other race by percentage. And I'm given to understand, as ludicrous as it seems to me, that people fly in and stay over to run the Bay State Marathon with the hope of qualifying. So I struck up a conversation, like I do, with Matt, the pacer. The pace groups have adapted to the reality of Boston. Hopefuls who need a 340 now pace to a 335 to cover that three-minute and change gap between qualifying and getting to run. You can't just run the standard. You have to beat the standard to be sure that all your training isn't for naught. Matt the Pacer had 20 or 30 hangers-on in the early miles, and they were all tucked in behind him like a great herd of hopefuls, but I tend to run ahead of the pack instead of in it. There was no wind, no need to cover, no need for the cover of the pack. So I stayed up front chatting with Matt, Matt told me he was pacing halfway and then handing off the responsibility. Someone else would pace the second half in his stead, and that seemed like a pretty good plan. I turned around and asked the crowd how many were trying to qualify today, and almost all the hands went up. Then I asked how many are first-time marathoners, and another dozen or so hands went up. And they were a serious group. I couldn't get much interaction out of them at all. And then I almost face-planted tripping over a road cone when I was turned to talk to them, and they thought that was pretty funny. But mostly they were all business. I tried to tell them that the race doesn't start until much later, but they were all business. So I pulled out ahead and ran my race, checking over my shoulder every once in a while to make sure I wasn't outrunning the pacer by too much. I started running with Brian in the late 90s. He was a stocky guy for a runner, a solid guy, an ex-cyclist. I had the jump on him at first because of my conditioning. In those early 20-milers, I would leave him in the late miles, but he was strong, and he got fast, and he got a lot faster than me. And once he started training, he was dipping into the six-minute miles and finding the podium at local races, and then he found Boston, and he found Frank, and we ran. And Brian was an engineer. And he left his corporate job and started his own construction business. And when we ran, I would do 85% of the talking. I imagine for him it was like having the TV on, random talking in the background. And that's why they call him the silent assassin. You wouldn't even know he was there until he passed you. And it was too late to do anything about it. And it was such a comfortable thing. Three guys with families and wives. Three guys meeting in the deep of a winter morning to spend two or three hours together, three guys sharing long, cold runs with the unifying force of another marathon, another Boston marathon, on the horizon. And it's hard to explain, because if you asked us, we would know surprisingly little about each other. But we were brothers, brothers in the shared suffering 
of the training and the Boston Marathon. And the bond of running cuts deep. It's hard to explain. And somewhere in the early miles, the two hammer gels I had brought with me jumped out of the pocket of my shorts and disappeared into the crowd of the 335 pace group behind me. It would have been a very poor decision to stop and try to retrieve them. So I smiled and said out loud, Well, I guess I'll be living off the land now. I still had my Endurolites and my water bottle. I knew the course was well supported, and they had goo on the course at 7 and 17. I'd be fine. I struck up a conversation with two runners pacing the pack with me. I could tell from the way he ran that he was a triathlete, and he was a coach pacing his athlete, a young woman trying her first BQ try, and they were willing to talk, so I regaled them from my repertoire of stories. And I also ran for a while with a 70-plus-year-old man who had run 28 Boston Marathons. And we had a good chat about the old times, but I still never saw Brian or Frank. And through the short rolling hills section in North Chelmsford at mile 5, I put a little bit too much distance between myself and the pace pack. And like a good student, I slowed down and let them catch up. And if you look at my data, you can see the one slower mile in there. And through these early miles, I churned away. My heart rate stabilized into high zone 1, low zone 2. And this means, such is my aerobic engine right now, that I was racing a marathon at around 120 beats per minute. I wasn't watching my pace or my time or my heart rate very closely, but I knew the relative ease at which I was pacing boded well for a strong finish. At some point, Frank and Brian made the decision to go deep, and my life balance wouldn't allow me to follow. They got faster. They went sub-three at Boston. I hung around and ran races with them and the occasional training run, but they were out of my league now. We ran different roads, but always met in the club hotel room at the end of each year's Boston Marathon. As we all moved into our 50s, things began to change. The last five years for us were the reckoning. Breaching the 50-year-old mark was an inflection point. Life and the nature of being human beat us all down. I guess you could say we earned a break, but whether we earned it or not, life gave it to us. Frank's hip started to ache, and he fought it all the way down. Grudgingly, he stopped running. He found a doctor that would resurface the asymmetrical offending bone, and for two or three years he fought to get back to what he loved. And Brian's had a death in his family, and and the foot pain he'd been battling for years just wouldn't go away, so he just stopped running. He just stopped. He disappeared from our long runs and only showed up at Boston to volunteer. And then plantar fasciitis knocked me out, And then my heart decided that a marathon a month wasn't a great idea. And it was a long, slow-burning descent into the madness of maybe never running again. But once Boston is in your blood, it's hard to stay on the sidelines. As we approached the 7-mile water stop, I was pretty sure they had gels. This was the water stop my club had run for years. 
And this year, sadly, the race organization didn't need our services. Many the October morning I spent at that water stop, cheering on my friends and handing out the necessaries. Sure enough, they had goo. I took a chocolate espresso of some sort, and I didn't eat it just yet, but I felt better that I had some fuel. I had drank a bottle of Yukan before the start, and then that had fueled me through the early miles. I could probably survive on the odd quaff of Gatorade, but I was in it for the long term and needed to play it safe and plan ahead. Once we got over the bridge in Tingsboro, I took the gel and washed it down with my water. My stomach was good. I was refilling my water bottle as necessary. I was sweating, but not a lot. I was staying within myself, and the effort level was reasonable. The only real issue I had was I had made the mistake of eating too much too late for dinner the night before. There's that self-sabotage again. That pasta started weighing heavily on my belly, and I started looking for a Porter John. It wasn't urgent, but I knew it could turn into a code brown if I didn't attend to it. So better to stop on my own terms if I got a chance. I ran the tangents down the back side of the river loop, running smart, staying just ahead of the pace pack. And since it is a two-loop course, we could see the high mile markers on the road. So the mile markers were about 100 feet apart. And just after what was 11 would be 21. And then we turned back over the Rourke Bridge and I accelerated a little bit because I remembered where the next Porter John was. And my thought was to let out the leash a little bit, build a gap, jump in, do my business, and pop back out onto the course to catch the pace group. And the Porter John was at a water stop around mile 14. So I ran behind the water table on a beeline for it, and wouldn't you know it, some other guy beat me to it. But I was committed now. So luckily he was brief, and I was too. Still, I might have lost two minutes in the process. I got back on the course, and I started to hunt. And now for today's featured interview. Yeah, last time we talked, funny, I put that episode up this weekend. I don't know if you listened to it or not. I did. So it was funny, we were talking around Memorial Day, and you were all lamped up to go into your race the following weekend. And uh, so the punchline is you missed it by a few minutes, but then you had had sort of a, a moment of thought and said, what the heck, let's do it again. Yeah. So, so I guess what, I, what I'd like you to do is sort of like walk me through the mechanics of the race and what you were able to figure out, right? Because a lot of it is trying to figure out, not the wrong way to say it is what went wrong, but just trying to figure out what happened in your race, right? Sure. Because uh, it's really hard. It's hard to um, to sort of look backwards and figure that stuff out, right? Oh, it really is. And even memory, uh, my memory blocks stuff out, man. And, and I have to actually go back and look at the data to keep myself honest from my own memory because how I remember things right. and how they actually went down are totally different. <laughs> yeah, you so, start making stuff up. Yeah, well, it's just you fill in the gaps. You're like, oh, man, that was a real slow mile. And you look and you're like, no, what? Or my heart rate, yeah. was, I felt like my heart was pounding out of my chest. No, it was it was 141. It, it was fine. I did go back. So, in short, three things that went through my mind that morning as I did the race. The temperature was great. It was nice and cool. We started out, and as expected, mile two was a significant downhill. 
for about half a mile. Now, for those of you who have done Boston, this is no surprise, and you're used to it and you've trained to that and stuff. All I've done is train on boardwalks and streets, completely flat, no hills, and admittedly that the caveat in your plan says that's going to make you more fragile in your racing, and it did. So right off the bat, I tried to be smart during that half-mile downhill, and I didn't know if I should hold back, if I should open my stride, close my stride, lean forward, lean back, step light, try and run diagonals to decrease this slant. It was a significant downhill. Yeah. And I remember thinking two things. One was I'm going really fast, and two is I'm going to regret this later, my quads. Yeah, because you're kind of a big guy. <laughs> yeah. You're a big guy. You were slamming down on it probably. Well, if you want the yes, right sir. answer, the right answer is you lean back and you push your elbows out behind you. So you don't actually lean back. You try to keep your center of gravity over your feet, right? So you're not heel striking, but you take short sp- you try to keep your turnover fast and short, and you push your elbows back, and that pushes your center of gravity back on the downhill. But if it's steep, it just hurts. Anyhow, you know, yeah. there's only so much you yeah. can do. And it didn't hurt so much then as I knew as it would and did hurt later. But and that so mile, just, I think, it, was like a 730, and that was with me trying to hold back. So three things right off the bat. Number one, I went out too fast. Number yep. two, I went I out think too we, fast. I think we talked <laughs> I think we talked about this. Did we talk about this? And I'm one to talk, we did. right? I saw my splits from the main marathon where I basically did yep. 10 mile tempo to start the race like an idiot. Yeah. But we, we, it feels good. Going like I, I thought I was holding back. Like, that's the thing. Like, you know, I have a GPS watch. I got a pace band. There's clocks every couple of miles. I have no excuse. I actually thought I was being smart. And then suddenly when I look back at the data, I'm like, oh, wow, look, mile two is at 7.30. Oh, look, here's another 7.30, like all within the first couple miles. And I'm like, guess what? Those extra 30 seconds are going to add up. And what I think also happened is it got my heart rate kicked up too high too early, and, and that's something you can't recover from. So a couple things were definitely I went out too fast. The other thing, and I actually did all right. I hung in there. Like you said, I only missed by a couple minutes, and considering my recent PR well, my most recent marathon was from the fall last year. This race that I'm doing this weekend, actually, a year ago, was 354. So the fact that I did it in 328, I mean, I'm happy with that. That's a 26-minute PR. I mean, I was ecstatic with that. And so, like you said, yeah. not necessarily what went wrong. There were a lot of things that went right. My fitness was great. My endurance was great. But one thing I noticed is right at mile 23, the wheels started to fall off. But it was not like that wall feeling of nutrition. I'm pretty good with nutrition, with taking in gels and, and chomps, and, and I don't eat a lot of them, but I do carry my own stuff from the Ironman, so I'm used to that. What happened to me at mile 23 was essentially I had so much pain in my legs, and that I attribute to the downhill and also to trail running, which half the race was on a trail, and that's another thing that I have not done at all. So not an excuse, but just ah. a reason that I likely had some pain was that I, again, was completely street and boardwalk and it's a trex boardwalk so it's nice it's not like a springy old thing and half the race was on a service road so i was running in a tire track and again no excuses but certainly a reason for me to have all this musculoskeletal pain by the end what's so putting all that so I get were hurt everything <laughs> my adductors my quads my calves it, it was like full cramping and that also led me to believe when i went back to deconstruct it that there's a missing piece here in talking yeah. to you on the forum also and realizing that if i'm mentally checking out at mile 23 i'm in so much pain and I, it wasn't a bonk either because my heart rate was actually okay my heart rate stayed like high 140s i wasn't short on calories what i do think is i was short on electrolytes Salt. 
And Asphalt. Yeah. How was your I, head? Especially because I was checked out, man. I was fine until about mile 20, and then I was like, I'm working a lot harder than I want to be right now, but I know that this is the hard part. And by mile 23 or 24, I was like, I, I can't. I have to slow down. And I actually don't even remember was, um, actually thinking that. I just, just remember doing it. Yeah, but was your head like fuzzy? Hard to think fuzzy? Yeah, that's another yeah. thing that'll get you with those electrolytes is you, you just feel your head getting fuzzy like that. That's an electrolyte. And those uh, abductor cramps, that's a classic uh, electrolyte symptom, right? And that's also a trail thing because you're running, you know, you get that sideways stress. Yeah. They call that the piano wire cramp from in the oh, trail running. Because I have zero experience with that. So these are all good things because they seem fixable. And so for the last six weeks, since I've been using like an interim in between marathon plan to maintain the fitness that I got with yours, but I haven't been in the track because the school's in session. And so I've just been doing all my runs open on the boardwalk. But as you had mentioned also, rightfully so, it's kind of hard to can't really do a lot of work over these six weeks because the first two weeks you're basically recovering. The middle two, as you said, you can get some hard workouts in there. And then the last two I'm tapering. So what I really try to do is mentally go back and see, well, what can I do different? I mean, I can't change any of the fit. I mean, the hay's in the barn. What can I do different to execute this and and at least set myself up to try and succeed a little better? And this race I'm familiar with coming up, this race is different. It is in Atlantic City, as I've sent you the map for it. It's completely on the boardwalk in the street. It's exactly how I train. There's very little turns in it, in fact. It's probably most people would say it's, I know you probably wouldn't like, you said you did it, actually. You probably didn't like it because it's very straight and boring and flat. Okay. I ran the half I like that. I like brainless running, and it's happened to be how I train. So, and it's, this will be my third time doing it. So they changed the course a little bit this year, but I'm still familiar oh, with it wait, enough. Oh wait, no, I did. It, I did run. I did run the marathon there. I remember that because I, I remember it's I had been around for a long time. Yeah, I had some god awful hotel room with. I swear there was still police chalk on the floor. <laughs> yeah, some AC Ramada in. Yeah, yeah. I we nice, go down nice the part of town. I don't, there. I don't mess around. Yeah, I don't mess around with hotels there. I live about uh, an hour and 15 minutes north. Same ocean, same beach, just 90 miles north. I would just drive down the morning of, and they fortunately have race day packet pickup, which is sweet. So I just have to get there, go in the casino, walk past the smoky <laughs> slot machines, get my bib, and, and it starts right out back. So it's a nice setup. And I said, well, all right, what can I do differently this year uh, or this, this race? What pace do you need, Jonathan? Well, so that's the interesting thing, because, again, we've talked about how what I, quote, need to officially qualify is only a 325. So that's a 747, right? 749, 749. But, of course, the goal is not just to qualify anymore. Like, since you've written that book, you need a significant margin now. And so I said, well, all right, I should shoot for a 320, which comes to a 737. So that was what I was originally planning for. So eight minutes off of that, that's a significant chunk. And so I said, well, all right, let's, let's see how I could set myself up for success this time. First of all, can I set up a pace strategy where I'm still within striking distance, but I'm not going out too fast? And so I decided that I'm actually going to run the first six to eight miles with, there is a pacing group. There's a large pacing group for 325 only. There's not a 320. Yeah. So I'm going to yeah. run with them. And then I'm going to strategically, as soon as it turns right south on the boardwalk, that's when the historically has been a strong tailwind and I've been following it. And I think that's when I'm going to slowly break off and start to slowly chip away at it. The time in the bank has yeah. never worked for me. Uh, I know you suggested yeah. and Well, and, um, well no, yeah. what I'm saying is if, if you go back to your race, right, you were running 730s on a 747 goal. What I was saying yeah. was you could run 745s or 742s on a 747 goal and still be three minutes off at the end, right, because of the distance of the race. 
So you don't have to be that far. Three to five seconds is fine, especially in the beginning. But, um, yeah, that's that's good. But remember, um, pace groups are led by humans, and as such, they're fallible. So you got to sort of run your own race even when you're running with that. And you want to sort of scope out the guy early or the guy or the gal early and see – what their experience and competence is. Yeah, some of absolutely. those and that is available. will go out way too fast. Yeah, and that, that info is available, so I am going to do that. And, and again, I do have my watch and my pace band, and, and I could definitely keep myself honest. But the the key will be basically before I hit the boardwalk, which is at mile eight, I'm going to be holding back, and the idea is going to be to save as many heartbeats as I can. Is how I'm looking at it. Like just no matter yeah, what, exactly. stay calm, stay relaxed, stay loose. Exactly. Do not stress about a damn thing. And once we get to the boardwalk, then we can start. Then and, and I have found even in my training runs that I do better that way. I actually run negative splits naturally. So once I'm warmed up, it should be a nice match to this ex- to execute this way. So as opposed to what happened in Allentown six weeks ago was I literally felt like I was hanging on by the skin of my teeth at mile 20, and that's never good. Yeah. So, so that was the first thing. So, the second um, thing is the electrolyte. I was just wondering about your Allentown race. How did that pace feel in the beginning? I mean, compared to your 354 <laughs> or whatever you ran before, yeah. well, what's no the doubt. comparison? It felt fast. It felt fast, man. The scenery was moving a lot faster than it used to. I mean, doing the speeds and the tempos on the track is one thing, but running it in town and running it sustained uh, was another. And it definitely felt fast for me because it was. But I remember thinking that I kept a close eye on my heart rate, and, and it was doing, I was doing all right until I wasn't, which is near the end, and that's, of course, how it always goes. But I actually felt okay. The other thing I started revisiting is my whole FEN, fluid electrolyte nutrition plan, because I think I was missing something, and it wasn't just the electrolytes. But I uh, also carry a bottle, and that's going back from when I did Ironmans. I used to use Infinite Nutrition which is like all custom made yeah. and titrated and, and stuff. But basically it's all, you know, it's all in one. It's fluids, electrolytes, nutrition, all in one. The problem with that yeah. is if you start to get nauseous or you just lose a taste for it and you just don't, can't stomach it anymore, you're kind of screwed. All of your eggs are literally in one basket. And what I found, and my wife actually pointed it out, at the end of the first race while I was on the ground in one big contorting, spasming ball of pain, she said, your bottle is still half full. And yeah. uh, that was my uh, scratch lab bottle. It looked a little <laughs> warm at the end there. Was it warm at the end? <laughs> I honestly don't remember. I would have to look back because <laughs> I, I, I don't, I, I literally, dude, I, all I remember is the 27th mile was the second worst of my life. The first being Central Park when I did New York in 2002. But this, um, we had to walk across a bridge. It was like another mile walking to the car. Man, I was just hurting. I could barely walk. I was so cramped up. And like I said, I feel like there was something missing. And what I really think was missing was I don't need to waterlog myself, but I need to get more fluid in me for sure. I lose a lot of weight and sweat for these long runs. I got to get some more in me. Yeah, that being said, you're a big enough guy that you can lose a lot of water and still compete, right? You can lose sure. eight pounds of water and still race. But like the ele- but I think as you said, you could go deep into dehydration, but the electrolyte, that's going to haunt you, and I think it did. Yeah, that's So what I started doing so, different is I, I split it out. For the first time ever, ever, I started running with just water. So for the last six weeks, because I figured, obviously, whatever I'm going to do on race day, I better test it ahead of time. And so I tried a couple different things, and what seemed to work for me the best consistently was running with just a water bottle. I still carry the uh, cliff shots, that you know, the gummy bears, yeah. chomps, whatever they're called. And I experimented both with salt capsules, which I had on hand from when I used to do Ironmans. They're called Succeed S-Caps. Yeah, S-Caps are and good. Yeah. yeah, I experimented with those. And then I tried this uh, base electrolyte salt. It's basically just 
salt. It's a little vial of salt. And you're like a deer. Yeah. You just you moisten your finger, you shake it, and you lick your finger. And that's the one I really liked. And I don't know why. It, really? it could just be mental. But I really, yeah, yeah. some people can't stand it. The, the salt goes everywhere and they don't like it. For some reason, man, it's like a treat for me after every mile. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but I like it. And so it worked for me. And so I started experimenting with this. And then on the 18 miler, I did a couple, or I guess two weeks ago, I did just that. And I made sure I took a full bottle in every hour. So I made sure I didn't end with any empty bottles. And I made sure I took one lick of that every mile. And I took a yeah. chomp every couple of miles and it worked. And I was not lightheaded yeah. at the end of 18 miles. I definitely felt like I could do, I felt like my head was in the game. And so I said, all right, maybe, maybe this is what was missing. Yeah. So the yes caps and the Endurolites, I think they have more than just salt in them. I think they have some aminos yeah. and some other stuff that help keep yep. your head clear as well. Or at least that's what the hammer guys told me. I don't know. But it works for me. Again, if it's psychosomatic, who cares, right? It works. Yeah, it can't not work. Now, one thing I noticed, and this is the reason, because one of my um, teammates had recommended the S-caps also. There were two things I don't like about them. One is I'm not really crazy about swallowing pills during a race. But the second thing is, I don't know, but it was just, I guess, in them digesting, they're in gelatin capsules. And so it takes some time for them to be digested and absorbed. And then all of a sudden, like I noticed that suddenly I look like a salt lick. Like suddenly I'm sweating salt. And so it's right it's, from my understanding of it. It's generally the opposite of what you think. If you have really salty sweat, uh, I've been told it's, it's not that you need more salt. It's that you have too much and that, that's how you're excreting it. And so I just found that it was a lot easier to kind of titrate it with the, the granular salt. I just literally just take a lick. So it's salt, water, and basically chumps. And that's my plan. So that's what I'm going to try different. I'm going to stick to that, and I'm going to stick to a 749 fastest pace, 749 for the first six to eight miles. And then after that, yeah, just, yeah, just try yeah. to keep your mile splits within five seconds. Right. And don't freak and, out. And if you're is, I, a little bit under right. a little over. And the issue also now is this becomes more of like a, a mental game now because yeah, I do want to qualify for the Boston marathon, but I also want to run the damn thing. <laughs> and so, you know, qualifying yeah. for it, I have, I have a pretty good chance of qualifying. I mean, three minutes, that could be an execution difference. Even with my current fitness from six weeks ago, technically, I'm in within striking distance of a 325. A 320 is a much taller order. And so part of me is not really sure if I should be aggressive and try and, and chase something down mid-race. No, you're, uh, you're, the you're, the doing, race. you're doing it right. You got to wait till after 20, right? Because you got to wait because the, the, the other shoe can drop at any point. You got to wait till that last 10K before you yeah. start ratcheting it up, and then you can ease into it slowly just to test it out if you still feel good. Yeah, I mean, you took, what, 26 minutes off your yeah. race time? Is that right? Or more than that? Yep. Yeah, no, it's 26. Yeah. I went from a 354 so, to a 328. So that's a big chunk of time. With your yeah. kind of consistency, remember, marathon training is kind of a an interesting thing in that you'll get steadily faster over 18, 24 months. That four minutes shouldn't be a problem, or that six minutes or 10 minutes shouldn't be a problem for you. If you keep your training consistently, right? Yeah. And, and, and now I, that and I'm, sorry, good. no, I said now that you you know how to do it, you know what it feels like. It's so much easier because you don't have to fight your own head to get there. You don't have to fight yes. past the can I do this because you already know you can do it. Now it's just a question of consistency. Yes, and and there are a couple of things I will fine tune a little bit better. It will definitely be easier now coming up for the winter here. And I know you're a northerner up there and you like running in the cold, but I can't stand the cold, especially here off the ocean. And, but it's going to be admittedly harder to execute your plan only because the track, you know, school's in session. And I can think of a million excuses, but if I really want to, I can get down there to do it for the track. 
But the things I will do different this time that I did not do with your plan, because, you know, again, having a little dose of honesty with myself, I don't stretch. And that's neither here nor there. I'm, I'm just, I hate stretching and I'm inflexible and that's, I'm inflexible because I hate stretching. <laughs> Don't do it. But that's something that I'm sure could help me if I, over the next four to six months, did it slowly and more consistently. And the second thing is my rest intervals. I was definitely more generous with them because my goal was to make it through your plan. I didn't even know if my body would, I mean, I'm 45. I didn't even know if I would be able to, to make it through your, your plan. So I would, huh. let's say we were doing, uh, you know, speed Tuesdays or tempo Thursdays. And I know, you, you know, your, your plan called for basically a minute or two to get your heart rate down, take a lap just to keep moving, and then get right back on it. I didn't do that. I took five to six minutes, maybe even more sometimes, seven, because if it was real hot, some of those days it was like 95, I would take longer. Yeah. Still got the work in, but I did not get the benefit of the cumulative fatigue. And this was pointed out not only by you and your book, but also some of the, the master's guys I met down at the track. They said, hey, the intervals you're doing are smoking. If you just, in the future, maybe start to bring that rest time down, you will get a lot of benefit from that as well. So that's the other thing yeah, I, can, you get, I can tweak. Yeah, you get the leg strengths. You don't have to jump on those big intervals. You can do some of those uh, step-up runs, some of those progression runs that you've been uh, working into this in between, this interregnum that you're uh, working through now. And I like those. I like the step-up runs. I haven't done them, and uh, I do kind of like them. And I think there's probably – I mean, I did read your article about them too. I think there is a lot to be gained from that, even from just a confidence thing alone but also the fact that you're turning it on and working harder right when you're the most tired, and that simulates the marathon more than anything. It's race specific. So that, yeah, so that's probably what I would do. If I do your plan again, I think I will, uh, for those long runs, do either a significant portion of them with the last half at or near race pace or work in those step-up runs. I think that yeah. would be the only change I would make. And, and I know some people, and, and even you have said you can, you can do that once in a while too. I think that would benefit me a lot as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think, no, we'll see what you do. So you're racing this Sunday, right? Yep, Sunday, 8 o'clock. But, yeah, it's uh, 8 o'clock. It, it should be, hopefully, uh, we'll see. I'm racing, too. It's supposed to be 75 on Sunday up here. Whoa, I didn't see that down here. <laughs> I saw 55 at the start, and I saw a high of 70. What time's your race? It's. Uh, I think it kicks off at 8, maybe. Oh, okay, same with mine. I guess, I, well, well. One of us is right, clearly. Maybe it, <laughs> yeah. Well, but, yeah. Uh, whatever. It is, what, it is what it is. It is what it is. So we'll see. All right. All right. So we'll hook up yeah. after that. You know, best of luck. Hey, thanks, man. Thanks, thanks for everything I, I as think, usual. I, think I was going to say, I think you've what? learned a lot. Anyhow. <laughs> oh, no, this has been great, man. I mean, dude, I'm telling you, your book is uh, just the fact that I came across it by accident, you know, that day on Amazon and then came across you and then all of the folks in your group as well. I mean, it, it's been an awesome year. Regardless of the, the Boston Marathon isn't going anywhere, and hopefully neither am I. Those lines will intersect at one point along the age group graphs in the, in the future. But uh, regardless of what yeah. happens this week, but it's been an awesome journey, man. I really appreciate it. So thanks for everything. All right. Well, thanks for, for talking us through this. I think it, we can help some people, right? So people can learn from oh, it. Oh, yeah. It's good. What's that? Then you'll oh, yeah. have even so more competition right. to get it. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it's that old joke. Every time I make ends meet, somebody moves the ends, right? <laughs> so, yeah. But that's all right. Keeps it fun. But I will talk to you after this race, and we'll both have some good stories to tell. All right. Cheers. See ya. Hey, thanks, man. Take care. Bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. I had totally blown my taper. 
and pacing execution at my target race three weeks earlier. I had gone out too fast. I knew I was doing it, and I did it anyway, such is my psychosis. But from the wreckage of that race, I took away an understanding that my fitness level was quite good. If I could spread the effort, if I could get my legs to hang in there, if I got the right race conditions, I had no doubt there was a faster marathon in me. I managed to walk away from that race without trashing my legs. I wasn't smart enough to pace well in the beginning, but I was smart enough to back off at the end and save my legs, and I was already thinking ahead. I knew Frank and Brian, who I had been training with all summer, had set Bay State as their A race, and I knew they were targeting a pace that was close to the pace I was targeting. If I could hook up with them early in the race, maybe they would hold me back and I could spread out my effort intelligently and meet my goal. And it didn't take me long to make the decision to double down to sign up for Bay State and refocus. Coming out of my rest stop, I knew I had some ground to make up to catch the pace group. But I felt good, and I eased into a faster pace. And in the data, you can see that one mile at an 8.45 pace where I took the stop. But that's not a straightforward equation. That 8.45 contained the 7-something that I put in to build a gap, and then the 7-something I ran coming out. And the next two miles clock in around 740s as I work to catch the pack. And it felt good to be letting the dogs off the leash a little, so to speak. And this was the section with the slight hills. After I popped out of my poop break, I began working my way up the course, picking off runners ahead of me. I came upon a familiar form. It was Dave McGilvery the race director of the Boston Marathon, running alone in his MR8 singlet. As I pulled up and passed, I said, Hey, Dave, it's me, Chris Russell, to which he grunted a response. He was working hard and not in any mood to communicate, so I pushed on. Around the next corner and up the long hill, I saw another familiar form. It was Brian. As I pulled up behind him on the hill, I yelled, Brian, it's me, Mad Dog. And he grunted in response. Geez, no one wanted to talk to me. Everyone was strictly business. I squinted up ahead and saw a knot of runners about a quarter mile on. And I asked Brian, is that the 335 pace group? And he said, I think so. So I put my head down and went back to hunting. Within a mile, mile and a half, I pulled up behind the stragglers trailing off the back of the pace group. And I said hi to the triathlete and his charge. But as I neared, I saw her form was starting to fall apart. And I said, hey, check your runner. She's losing her form. And I pulled up to the new pacer, Nat, not Matt, but Nat with an N. And I pulled up to the front of the pack and I introduced myself to the new pacer, Nat, not Matt, but Nat with an N, and said to the pack, you folks miss me? And someone said, yeah, where'd you go? And I said, I had to poop. Everybody poops. Frank was anxious when we met at the expo on Saturday. He'd been training hard, getting back to where he could take a run at, at a qualifier after having his hip resurfaced a couple of years ago. 
and he had issues on his last long run at the end of the build cycle. The muscles in the joint had failed him, and he had to walk. He had 90% decided not to race, and me, being the voice of unreason, talked him back into it. I argued that it was the end of a hard cycle and a peak week, and that was the worst it could get. Coming out of the taper, everything would be much better. Start slow, and if it feels okay in the high miles, then you race. If it doesn't, you can bail. And he was afraid of having to post his first DNF. It was that pride. But I told him it was different now. We, were, we weren't trying to pound out a three-hour marathon. We were just going to pace to a 340. It's an entirely different race. And he committed to give it a try. He cheered up a bit, but I could tell he was still worried. Bay State and I have a history. Bay State has a history with all of us. The course is 10 miles from my house, if that, in Lowell, Massachusetts. It was created as a race for the local club runners to qualify for Boston at. Let me repeat that. The course was specifically designed by local runners who qualified for Boston every year to be a Boston qualifier. The course has changed a bit over the years, but the meat of it is the same for the would-be marathon qualifiers. It's a two-loop course that hugs the Merrimack River, and because it runs along the river, it is flat. Not pancake flat, but as flat as you can get in Massachusetts outside of a track. There might be, I don't know, 250 feet of gain on the whole course. Bay State was my second marathon ever, and my first qualifier. Back in 1997, I ran scared to a 3.09 finish after a summer of speed work, and ironically, that time would still qualify me at the 35 years old I was, but probably wouldn't be fast enough to get me into the race. That was the old course. The new course is similar, but starts and finishes in the city proper. I have qualified on the old course twice. I have DNF'd on the old course, too. I've raced the new course once before in the tail end of a hurricane with 30 mile per hour wind gusts, and I couldn't close the deal that day. Frank currently lives less than a mile from the course, and we routinely, we always have, routinely run our long runs on part of the course. The Mill Cities Relay, our annual end-of-season relay race, the celebration for all the local running clubs, runs down the backside of the river on the same course. So I've probably run the course in one form or another, or parts of it, over a hundred times over the last 20 years. So yeah, the Bay State Marathon for me is like that old, worn coat that you love to put on in the fall. After catching the pack on the backside of the course around mile 16, I fell in with them and let my efforts settle a little. The big pack of 25 to 30 had whittled itself down to 10 to 12, and they were streaming off new pacer Nat's shoulder like dust from a fading comet. I knew the gels were coming up at 17, and I grabbed another one. And right after that 17-mile water stop, you cross the Tingsboro Bridge again and begin to head back to the city. This is the home stretch. It's psychologically 
downhill from here. I sucked down that second gel on the other side of the bridge and began to prepare myself for the looming contest. I did not know what to expect. After mile 18, the end can come suddenly. But I had paced well, and I knew I was at least six minutes up on my qualifying time, and all I had to do was execute. No heroics, just keep pacing, work the tangents. Brian's sister and his kids kept popping up on the course every so often and cheering me in my goon squad singlet. They made me smile. There's not much crowd support on the course, so seeing a familiar face was welcome. One of the other great things about this course is that it is chock full of milestones. You have the bridges, then on the back stretch you have the old horse farm with its white fence, the golf course, the tech school, and then the boathouse. All familiar milestones for me as the miles progress. And this time, as we ran past the 21-mile marker, instead of turning over the bridge, we kept going straight down the boulevard, along the river, towards the finish. And somewhere after 21, Nat the pacer pulled up and started chatting at me, and I calmly apologized and informed him that I was going to another place now and would not be available for conversation. I was dropping into the race zone. Systems check. My head was clear. My legs were fine. My energy was good. It was work, but it was the kind of work the high miles in a race are supposed to be. I wasn't soaked with sweat. The drier weather kept the water loss manageable. I had my black Phoenix rock and roll hat and my sunglasses that I got from the Liver Foundation for the 2015 Boston Marathon. And now that we were headed back, the sun was rising. There wasn't any wind, and there weren't any clouds, but it wasn't hot. My black goon singlet with the big white G wasn't sticking to me. My Brooks baggy shorts weren't clinging. The only chafing I would end up with would be just a smidge from my heart rate strap. No bloody nipples today, no chafing in the crevices or on the pointy bits. I had my bike bottle in my hand and refilled it two or three times as needed, but never felt like I was forcing fluids or getting behind. The old hokas weren't squishy with sweat. I made the call to wear the hokas again. They probably had a thousand miles in them. I bought them for Boston in the spring, and this would definitely be their last race they were starting to wear. But I had trained in them. They were familiar, and at the end of the day, it's not about the shoes. I focused hard on racing, pulling within myself and waiting. Mile 18, 19, 20, 21. They clicked by. I let the pace group go behind me, or more accurately, I stopped worrying about the pace group and just ran my race. In the data, you can see my heart rate start to creep up out of zone 2 into zone 3 as the blood thickens and the effort level rises and it's time to race, pace, tangents, execution, keep laying it down, pull in your form tight, hold that pace, execute. A couple minutes behind, Brian could see me up ahead and he stalked the 335 pace group and held his pace. 
He wasn't watching his watch, but he knew they were a couple minutes fast. He had executed his race plan, starting out slow, running steady splits, and putting himself in position to close it hard late. And Kelly, his sister, jumped in with him for the last few miles. She's an accomplished marathoner and a veteran of Boston, and she knew what he needed and got him to focus and work his form. He was hanging on, and he was where he wanted to be. A couple minutes behind Brian, Frank was feeling okay. His hip was holding up. He started out very easy and would need to negative split the course to get his time, and that was his strategy. Coming over the bridge, he checked his watch, and he knew he had some time to make up to get into Boston. He didn't quite know how much time he had. He knew it was close. On the back stretch, he dropped the hammer and began that long 10K to the finish, and he was running scared. Somewhere around mile 22, Nat, the pacer, pulled up beside me. I think he was chasing me. I looked at my watch, and my head was clear enough to do the math, and I said, you know you're three minutes up on your pace, right? And he made some oh-crap noises and slowed down like someone had pulled the drag chute. That last stretch down the river is part of the 10-mile leg of the Mill Cities Relay that I have raced many times. I knew there were some unnecessary short climbs in there, and I thought we were going to turn over the University Bridge and it would be one last half-mile push down to the finish. I had the finish wrong. <laughs> the bridge I thought we were going to cross came and went, and I checked my watch, and we still had a couple miles to go. But I was running strong. I just put my head down and continued to execute, it didn't matter where the finish was. Wherever it was, that's where I was going. And to get there, I had to execute. Focus, pace, form, tangents. My head was clear. My legs were good. I was working hard, but it was the work of earned training, not the suffering of the crash. I started passing stragglers and the occasional walking dead. I wasn't looking at my watch. It didn't matter. I kept running. And finally, a turn over an open mesh metal bridge across the river, and the finish had to be close. We ran through a back lot area, the surface rough and pockmarked with the abuse of hundreds of years of mill workers. I recognized the old Wanalancet Mill, where the brewery used to be. Another hard ride, another short, rough section of road, and there were people screaming encouragement, but I didn't hear them, really. I could hear the finish. I knew where I was. There was a guy deep in the throes of a crash ahead of me, weaving in the tangents. He'd run a bit, then stumble a bit. I had to time it right to get by him on a corner. I snuck by, and we were back on Morrissey, and I could see the turn into the arena driveway a few hundred feet ahead. I stretched out my stride and gave it everything I could. I jammed hard down the driveway towards the chute. My legs were letting me push hard. I left it all out on the course and staggered through the chute and across the mats. Bent over and sucking air, I was very happy. I may have thrown my arms up in celebration. I forgot to stop my watch as I got some water and picked up a medal. The clock read 3.33 and change. Six and a half minutes under my age group standard.
I walked back up the chute to the finish, watching the runners crash through in ones and twos. In a small race like this, the flow is intermittent. I shouted encouragement and high-fived as they came through, some of them I recognized from the hours on the course. And I knew Brian was behind me. And in a moment, there he was, pushing hard, giving it everything. He pushed across the mats at 3.35. He executed on his training, ran a negative split. I gave him some water as we celebrated and traded war stories about the race. And then Nat the pacer, the 3.35 pacer, came through with only one or two runners still with him. That's how it goes. Brian and I wandered through the finish area, and we met up with his family and got some food, and then Frank came bouncing up behind us. He had dug deep and finished in a 337, laying down a handful of fast miles to beat the standard. We wandered through the food line with our medals, talking with exhausted excitement about the race, like we had just spent the last few hours holding our breath and now could finally exhale with the passing of the storm and look back fondly at the tempest. A resurfaced hip, a recovered foot, a cryo-ablated heart, a summer of hot training, 20 years of running together, and it all started with this race. And here we were, back from the dead, so to speak, The perfection of that moment is in our eyes as we lowered ourselves ungracefully to sit on the low curb and mugged for that photo. Back where it all began, three old guys, three comrades of many battles with three shiny new Boston qualifiers. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, my friends, you have trained hard and raced smart to the end of episode 4-376 of the Run Run Live podcast. Time to hang that medal on the rack and lay around, recover a bit. And this train to the city, it takes about an hour. A lot of people sleep. And supposedly there's an internet access of some sort, but I can never make it work. And this is the express train, but it's running a lot slower on most mornings. We don't have real trains like Tokyo or London or the Netherlands. Ours are slow and barely keeping their heads above water, like old, tired beasts of some sort. So I took the early train yesterday, and it is a funny crowd. These commuters, they all know each other on the early train. It's like a family reunion of bureaucrats, slightly rumpled career office workers in comfortable shoes, and they chat away like a sewing circle. Thank God. No, no, no. Thank Steve Jobs for headphones. Noise-canceling headphones. Did you see Shalane? She won the New York City Marathon. And that's amazing. Amazing! So I have a funny story about the New York City Marathon from my commuting experience. And you folks may remember that I ran the New York City Marathon in 2014 as a sponsored athlete with ASICS. One of the amazing things that has happened to me through this podcast, through Run Run Live. And I still, I know, I still can't believe it either. Why would anyone want to sponsor a journeyman marathoner like me? But, well, they apparently mistook Internet Famous for Actually Famous and and sponsored me. And they gave me so much stuff. I mean, if you look at my current Facebook profile picture, you'll see... 
the 3D statuette they created of me that sits on the mantle in my living room where they made me look like Will Wheaton with a full head of hair. So <laughs> one of my favorite stories is how I ended up on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. True story. But I'm still working my way through all the swag that they gave me as a sponsored athlete. And since I've been commuting into the city, I have been wearing that New York City jacket and carrying the New York City backpack for my gear. And I was on the red line train last week heading out of the city. And the guy across from me says, man, you have all the gear. And I looked up from my book and said, what? And he said, the New York City Marathon, you have all the gear. And you see, he was running the New York City Marathon that week and his first New York City Marathon. And I just happened to stumble into his awareness zone. And you know what I mean, right? It's like when you buy that new car or that new thing and then start noticing that new thing everywhere, right? So I said, yeah, I ran in 2014. And we struck up a conversation and I did my best to fill him in on the overwhelming machine that is the New York City Marathon. It's quite an epic event. And at some point I said, I was sponsored by ASICS because I'm internet famous, which isn't actually famous. And I, I know I tell the same jokes over and over and over. Yeah. And I could see the recognition sort of dawning in his eyes. And he blurts out, run, run, live, as both a statement and a question. And I, proud and peacocky now, stood to shake his hand. So, Chris, if you're out there, that was fun for me. Thanks for making my day. And to drag out the tired vehicle, occasionally I do indeed see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. Which means I probably won't have to be the guy running the 10-mile leg. I'll, and there's Buddy. Uh, so I just let the dog in. And he's wandering around upstairs trying to push the doors open to all the bedrooms so he can see who's here. Especially my bedroom, because if he finds there's no one in my bedroom, he will climb into my bed and put his stinky butt on my pillow. But, uh, sounds like he's not going to do that. Oh, he may be coming back down. He can't hear me, so I can talk about him. I know, I still can't believe it either. Why would anyone sponsor... Oh, here he comes. He's coming back down? He might be coming back down. Yep, he's coming back down. That's your own damn fault. Yeah, you ran into that. Do you want to go back out now? Okay. 